<laughs> Hi, this is Greg Anderson, and this is the Living in Carver County podcast. It's an insider's conversation with the people who make Carver County the best place to live, work, and raise a family. I'm really grateful today to be joined by a longtime kind of Waconia uh, pillar of the community. Um, I, I'm just delighted to introduce you to Dean Hilgers. Dean, thank you so much for agreeing to be on today. Hey, you're very welcome. It's a pleasure and a privilege. So before we get going, I like to get, uh, I like to have people just for those of people who don't know who you are and that, you know, um, just maybe give people a little sense of your background, you know, tell people how you grew up or where you grew up and kind of, you know, your basic career path. Well, I was born in Waconia and uh, my parents were and my grandparents also were. Um, I thought it was so cool to grow up on Olive Street, and that's the street that drives from Highway 5, where the old uh, farm supply used to be, toward downtown Waconia. So um, that was a great place to grow up. We had a great neighborhood, lots of fun, a lot of great kids in the neighborhood. Um, I went to a local school, St. Joseph's Catholic School. I went to Waconia High School. Um, throughout growing up, I had a paper route, and then a second and a third. But um, it really was like Beaver Cleaver or Mayberry. And I really mean that in a positive way. I'm not making light or fun of it. I mean, I, I was so blessed to grow up in this community. Um, I got very much involved in the marching band and different activities in the community, uh, community ed, sports, so on and so on. Um, I went to college in St. Cloud, Minnesota. My undergraduate was in aviation and personnel psychology. And That's I was all set. Oh, isn't that crazy? I wanted to be a professional pilot. And um, I got all those designations, commercial, instrument, private pilot. But I started working at Waconia Ford so I could earn money to do more flying. But I found out that I really enjoyed selling cars. And while it sounds somewhat crazy, um, being, being that I grew up in the community, I, I knew so many people. And it was almost like... Um, fun as opposed to a job. So after doing that for my three years that I was through college, on the fourth year, rather than deciding to go to become a professional pilot, I decided to work full-time selling cars. And um, after doing that for 10 years, I had the privilege of buying Waconia Ford. And um, it was just such a neat experience because it was a small community at that time. I believe Waconia probably had 4,000 people. But as the community grew, we grew as a company and then built the new dealership on Highway 5, which is across from Ridgeview Hospital. So I enjoyed that challenge. And uh, I did that for 25 years as a professional career and then sold about 12 years ago. Um, so, yeah, that was my profession. I enjoyed it immensely. They were great people to work with. And, uh, yeah, that brought me to my early 40s. Um, at that point, I went back to college and got some graduate degrees. Um, I've endeavored in other projects, and you know some of those. But, uh, yeah, that takes me to the moment. My so, family's grown up here. It's just, again, it's, it's a privilege. So talk a little bit about that. I mean, how old were you when you bought the dealership? Um, I was 29, and I think that wow. was probably a rare scenario, but um, – when I graduated college, the owners at the time knew that I had an interest, but I'm sure they did not take me serious. Here I was a 21-year-old kid coming out of college thinking, hey, someday I'd love to buy the company. But, you know, I had studied in personnel psychology uh, quite a bit about people 
And the personnel psychology track also was a business track. So I had all the background in financial and accounting issues. So I felt, you know, potentially ready to do something one day as I matured in my own career. And fortunately, the uh, former partners and owners at Waconia Ford did give me that chance. And I realized at 29, that was somewhat young. But um, at that point, I had almost, well, 10 years in the business because I started while I was in college. And um, I really studied people. I mean, that's the study of personnel psychology. And um, yeah, if, with, without that opportunity, I guess, you know, my whole trajectory in life would have been different. Yeah. So, so what was some of the biggest um, learning lessons uh, in the car business? I mean, cause it's, it's really kind of a, I mean, I always think of car, selling cars as a, um, you know, you get, you kind of eat what you kill, you know, you've got to do this every day. And, and uh, it's a, it's a, you know, you get a lot of feedback really quickly. So true. I mean, well, it, I, I look at from another vantage point, um, being that I was new in the business and I had no clientele other than people that I knew, um, they weren't just rushing in the door asking for Dean Hilgers to buy a car from. So what <laughs> Where's I that young kid? Where's that young morning, kid? <laughs> right, every morning, I would schedule, and I had some of my most favorite customers like Earl and Bernie Klein. They're a farm family. They're out by Schmidtville. And Earl had never walked into a Coney Ford to buy a truck ever, or a car for that matter. You'd have to go to Earl's house, sit at the kitchen table, and have something to eat. And then we'd talk about cars at his pace. <laughs> and I did that almost, almost four times a week, every week for the first three, four years I was in the business. That's how I built my clientele. Um, there's many other families that were the same. The Vinkemeyers did that, um, the Getz family. And it was a privilege to come into their home. I mean, they let you into their private space. They'd tell you what's going on in their life, how the farm was working out. They'd show you what their new uh, herd looked like, or they'd show you the new calves in the barn. And then we'd go talk car. And when we were on their turf, they felt very confident, very comfortable. And that's really how I started building my clientele. And once you do that, you know, they have children and cousins and neighbors. And I, I would bet I was putting on 15,000 miles a year driving to customers' homes locally. So it was interesting. There's a lot of great sales lessons in there. You know, it, it's it, that <laughs> I, I like that approach. I mean, that, that relationship building is really the key to any kind of long-term sales success. So um, it was, that's, I mean, it, it, that had to be an anomaly really at that time, because I mean, the car business, I mean, you're talking about what years were you talking about then, Dean? Um, that would have been from 1980 until probably around 1990. Yeah. So, I mean, during that era, that was still the more, of, I mean, the, the pervading sales attitude across a myriad of industries back then was more of the Glengarry Glen Rose sort of model. Right. So, I mean, you had to be bucking a, a pretty big trend. Did you get a lot of grief from the, the other sales guys or did they just kind of start to well, see the success or how did that, how did you, how were you kind of incorporate or, you know, how are you meshing with the people that were already in, had been doing it for a long time? It was a bit awkward only because I was working part-time going to college, but I would drive from St. Cloud State University to Oconia four days a week, back and forth to my class back home and they knew I was serious. Otherwise, I wouldn't be driving 140 miles each day to go to work back and forth. 
And, you know, obviously they were putting in a lot of hours. I was putting in a few less hours, but to make up for that, I would come on weekends and I would scrub the floor in the shop or I would uh, help clean up the lot or align the cars. I just wanted to prove my worth in being there, not just taking away a sale that they might have earned. But the difference was they said, hey, we're going to take the people that walk in the door as our customer. You, you go out and do your own thing. So I guess I did that, and I tried to prove that I'll do what it takes to earn your trust as a, you know, another salesperson on the sales floor. I, I certainly did not want to take away any of their opportunities. They were there making a full-time living for their family. I didn't have a family, but I was trying to work toward a career. I did whatever it took to prove that I was worthy of being part of their group. And it took a few years. I mean, some of these people just said, yeah, there's this kid here. He's coming in. He's coming and going. But I stuck it out. And, and I do believe I earned their trust. And after the first 10 years of working there, I mean, then, you know, we worked together as, you know, yes, I was the owner or the boss, but I never tried to put that attitude across. I'd empty the garbage or sweep the floors or whatever it took. I, mean, I just think that's the way of earning earning your worth as opposed to just deeming that you should have that trust. You know, I, I never believed it that way. I always thought I had to earn it and then work a little bit harder to earn that. I like that. I like that. Did did how many were the number of the salesmen? Did they stay on then when you transitioned into ownership? They did. We had four salespeople at the time. But then um, shortly after I got involved as owner, um, I had a few other new guys that we hired on who were local guys that had never sold a vehicle in their life. They were transitioning out of their careers. One of my favorite guys was Herb Souter. Everybody used to call him Herbie. And Herb lived up the street from Waconia Ford when it was downtown. He lived up toward Waconia High School. Now it's called Bayview. Mm -hmm. But anyway, Herb had and he retired in his late 50s and he was bored because he'd go fishing when he caught his limit he'd sit at home on the porch with nothing to do so we just talked with Herb one day and said Herb would you consider selling cars and he had quite a gift of being a friend and a, and a comedian but he did so well and uh, Herb sold cars for about 10 years and unfortunately died of an aneurysm but when he died it was almost as though my own father died he was such a nice man such a close guy to me but but that was a unique relationship he wasn't just an employee I mean when I would introduce myself or Herb would introduce me it's like we worked together I never said I'm the boss or the owner I, I tried never to do that another guy I'm so fond of is Ron Wagner and Ron was in the cattle business out on Highway 5. The Wagners had a number of farms along Highway 5 in Laconia on the east side. Mm -hmm. And Ron wanted to get out of uh, working the cattle business and the cows. And when Ron started, he was phenomenal also. So there's just two guys who came from another industry completely. They're real, they were really successful. Ron is still there. Um, one of my mentors is Mike Keveney. Uh, Mike started about five years before I did, and Mike showed me the way and really took time to help mentor me. So I owe Mike a lot too. And That's actually, cool. Mike is still on you forward. Mike has been there since 1974 or 75. Oh my gosh. I know. Mike just turned 70. I just wished him a happy birthday the other day, but Mike has been there about 45 years. Oh my gosh. That's amazing. I, it really speaks to the culture there. Well, you know, there was a neat culture before I got there. Um, Ron Moctimus, they call him Mac, a local young man, was there his entire career. And then Jerry Lenzen, who is Mac's partner, 
were both mentors additionally, but they were more of the business mentor as opposed to the sales mentorship. You know, they had been running the company successfully. Um, and when I got involved, I just thought, hey, we can, we can do some additional growth. We can do some modernizing. And it's always an awkward deal because if it works the way it worked in the old days, why change? But, you know, when I got involved, it was in downtown Waconia where HEI Collision currently is. Mm-hmm. And we had all four cars. And at the time, I believe we maybe had 10, 11 employees. And by the time I, I left and sold the company, we had 150 plus employees. So I'm really proud that, you know, we made a difference in a lot of families' lives. I mean, you just imagine there's 150 employees plus their spouse, plus their children. Um, gosh, I remember we had like uh, 300 people easily on our health plan at any given time. There were times where our health plan was covering like 300, 375 members between the families and our employees. So again, what a gift to be able to be a part of this whole growth and evolution of a small company in Wilconia. Yeah, that, I mean, that's a lot of people that are impacted. And then, you know, the the residual, you know, those people are in turn, you know, eating in the local restaurants, shopping in the local stores, you know, living in the community, you know, getting involved in service things. So, I mean, there's a huge impact there. So that's something to be proud of. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, I said, absolutely. I agree with you. Again, it was such a privilege to be able to do that. And I, and I mean that. I mean, yes, there were challenging days like we all have. And the Gulf War hit. We had the savings and loan crisis. And, you know, a number of big things happened in my 25 years. But you get over those little blips. And, you know, I, I remember almost every year being a wonderful year. The car business, how have you seen the car business change? I mean, I know we're getting maybe way into the deep weeds, but I always think this is interesting. You know, I remember, uh, I mean, I, I watched a documentary on, um, or I listened to, it was a it was a radio documentary, and I think it was on uh, This American Life, and they were had done a profile of, they basically followed a, a car dealer through an entire month, I think it was in New York, and, and they were talking about the pressures that, you know, after the recession and the restructure, so many of the big, uh, you know, the big uh, manufacturers, you know, they put the quotas on. And I didn't realize how intense those were and how they fluctuate from month to month. Where, was that something that was in place when you were, in, when you were running the dealership or is that something that kind of came afterwards? No, that was in place. So as an example, we were selling a lot of F-Series trucks. The F-Series is, is and has been the most popular selling vehicle for nearly 50 years. You sold but a lot of trucks in Carver County? What? <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, but here's, here's the crazy part. If you wanted to, like, let's say you wanted to order 100 more F-Series trucks for your lots or inventory, you can get the hundred trucks, but you'd have to take 40 of something you did not want, like say 40 Crown Victoria cars or 30 something that's an odd you know, unit that you couldn't sell. And the problem would be you'd have those 30 or 40 cars sitting around for six, nine, or even 12 months, and then you'd have to pay interest on those cars. So in order to get what you really wanted, you'd have to buy a lot of production that they couldn't sell much of. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that's just the offset. So you really had to think forward. You had to plan. I mean, there'd be actual times where we'd take a loss on a car that we did not want just so that we could get 10 of something we did need. And I, I know people may not believe that, but that's just the way the manufacturing world works. You're going to have to take a little of what you don't want to get what you really do want. 
Yeah, that's that's a it's a dynamic that I think you're right. I don't think a lot of people understand. And then the other part of it is you're subject to, um, you know, I mean, I think that various brands kind of, I mean, the F-150, you know, that was a nice thing for Ford. I mean, a nice thing for you with Ford is it's kind of been a mainstay forever. Um, but the, you know, the challenge, I, you know, I remember, um, I think it was around the time of the recession when Robert Lutz was the CEO. And I, I wrote this down because I wanted to ask you about this quote because I thought it was pretty funny. And he said that the, the, their line of products look like a family of angry kitchen appliances, you know, with demented, <laughs> t- demented toasters, furious bread um, makers and vengeful trash compactors. And- <laughs> that's coming from the top and then you guys are stuck trying to you know not you guys this this was obviously general motors i think he was talking he was probably talking about the um chevy uh what the hell was it it was uh not the caprice um no, yeah maybe it was the caprice i had one for my or had one for my son it was like the first car we got and i every time i looked at it i thought it looked like an angry washing machine <laughs> after i'd read he kind of put that in my head and I, I guess what i'm getting at is you know sometimes there's a you know they have a product line that's maybe not particularly popular and uh you know you guys are trying to you know get the you keep moving these things out the door and uh, it's it's got to be an interesting business where you're not you you're required to make something move but you don't really have much input in terms of you know what the product actually is so um well you know was that so a challenge true, remember, it's a challenge i remember the first new car sold and the first new car was a ford pinto and you may have remembered the pinto they were a small little economy car but brand new on the show floor was 29 $2, but really people didn't want the Pinto, even though it was cheap. And there was this new world car, it was called a global or a world car that was being developed. It was called the Ford Escort. So my first new car I sold was a 79 Pinto. I sold it in 1980, but in 1981, the Escort came out and that was such a great car compared to the old Pinto. It was like, it was like a junk vehicle to a modern evolutionary car. So yeah, it, you know, we went from that era to the next, and there was another little car called the Maverick, and that was a lot nicer car than a Pinto, a little bit bigger, and just as a side note. <laughs> Not um, much Ford better looking. I, you're talking about you know, my era. I remember these cars, and <laughs> for people who don't, Google a Pinto and a Maverick, because honestly, Maverick wasn't that hot looking either. <laughs> well, here, here's a cute little side note. So last week, Ford announced they're bringing back the Ford Maverick. <laughs> but the Maverick, it's only going to be a name because the new Maverick is going to be the small pickup, smaller than even a Ford Ranger. So this new little pickup will be called Maverick, and it'll be priced, and I'm not trying to advertise for Ford, but it'll be priced just under $20,000. So it's something one of our kids or grandkids might want to look at one day. I mean, front-wheel drive, good mileage, solid car or truck, you know. So anyway. Well, well yeah, today I, under 20000 is quite a, that's actually kind of a neat trick. It is. And I don't want to spend all the time talking about Ford because, you know, there's a lot of... I just, I I, I mean, I I used to, you know, think of myself, well, I grew up in central Wisconsin and and I don't know if you remember V&H Ford. Oh, very much. Used to do dealer trades with them where we'd swap an inventory item with them and they'd swap with us occasionally. Yeah, well, Jeff Hamas and I went to high school together. So I know it kind of got to be, you know, kind of follow the car business sort of from a distance and... 
and um, uh, and I think he's actually I think he owns the dealership now completely. But um, but anyway, so I was kind of had a thing, and my dad was a Ford guy, so we always had F one fifties and. And so, um, anyway, just kind of, you know, watching it from a distance, it's fun to hear from the, hear somebody talk about it from the inside. Cause, but yeah, there were, the Pinto was not, one, <laughs> was not, not going to go down as one of the great designs of all time. <laughs> so true. So true. All right. So, 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 okay. So what, what caused you to sell? I mean, it sounded like you had kind of a good thing going there. You know, you were working with your friends, things were kind of rocking and rolling. So what was the what was the impetus to say okay I'm time to do something different? Well, we got a phone call one day from this infamous Ford dealer named Denny Hecker, and um, <laughs> some of you heard about Denny Hecker. He he owned a lot of dealerships in the Twin Cities, and he called and said, "Hey, would you consider selling?" And I said, "No, we're not interested." And I said, what's your motivation for trying to buy? And he said, well, you keep selling more cars in Waconia than we can sell in Eden Prairie, and it's driving me crazy. Um, he had a big dealership at Eden Prairie. It's still there. It's a different name now. But anyway, um, I was so proud that we were selling more cars than Denny Hecker in Eden Prairie, Minnesota, and we just kept saying no. But whenever someone talks to you about buying your dealership, you have to tell Ford Motor Company and they need to know what's going on in the background. And I told Ford and they said, well, I, what are you going to do? I said, well, we're not selling. Well, Denny called a few other times and then finally Ford said, well, we're not sure we want to let Denny have another Ford dealership in the Metro. So if you are thinking about selling, why don't you talk to us directly because we could help guide you along a different path. And I just left it sit on the table for about a year. But after 25 years in the industry, I was a little bit curious. You know, you work long days, long hours, even though it's enjoyable. You know, it's a seven-day-a-week job. Even on Sundays when you're off, you're still taking phone calls from people that have needs. But anyway, I called Ford and said, well, what other option did you – what were you trying to say a year ago? And they said, we would consider buying your dealership, which is a very rare situation where the Ford Motor Company would actually buy – one of their dealership franchises, but in the United States, about seven, it's I think it's seven and a half percent of all dealerships must be minority run or controlled. And um, they needed additional minority controlled dealerships to fit into a quota that the government was working with. And um, so we started talking and at the end of the day, we ended up selling to Ford Motor Company and then they could choose a person that they wanted to come in and run the dealership. Mm -hmm. um, Fortunately, we decided not to sell the real estate. So the real estate was separately owned and uh, Ford Motor Company then leased it from us. Okay. And they put their own operator in and that lasted about three years. And the gentleman that had been the designated dealer for Ford um, was a real nice man, but he was from Detroit and saw that um, dealing automobiles in the Midwest is far different than dealing with automobiles in Detroit. So it didn't work out for that gentleman. And then Ford tried another person for two additional years, and that didn't work out as well. Their sales had declined. Their employee count went down. So ultimately, Ford then sold the dealership to another private individual like I was originally. So now it's in private ownership hands again. It's not controlled by Ford. But anyway, there, there's a lot of quotas and government issues between not just Ford, General Motors, all manufacturers have to have a certain percentage of their dealerships run by a minority person. So 
I just got a great opportunity. I mean, they, they offered a really, really fair price and it gave me options. I had three little kids at the time that I was never able to see. So um, I kind of just took, took the, the offer and we still had great income from real estate and leasing the building to Ford. And then we just went a different direction in life. I, as I said, I went back to school and studied yeah, some other areas. Talk a little bit about that, Dean, about going back to school. What, did, what, what, what caused that or what were you interested in? Or, I mean, was it just sort of an I, exploratory time for you or did you have something in mind? Because, huh? I mean, course you know, correction, certainly with COVID, <laughs> you know, there's been a lot of people that have either wanted to course correct, you know, that have sort of t- kind of hit a reset and kind of reevaluating things or, or maybe it was mandated, you know, maybe it was uh, uh, not a choice, you know, that they're having to reconsider. So, you know, I mean, at this point you're, I mean, obviously it was different, a little bit different for you because you had, you know, significant financial means, but, but, you know, what, talk a little bit about that. I mean, what's that like to course correct, you know, it's sort of, I mean, you weren't even midlife for crying out loud. You were still reasonably young guy. So. You know, I had a few interests in life, and uh, one was I wanted to be on different uh, boards, or I wanted to give back to the community that helped me grow my life. So I got involved in different uh, different boards of directors, some of the nonprofits in the local area, like Mary's Wish and others. Um, but I also liked philanthropy. So I went back to St. Thomas University in, in Minneapolis, actually, and I went to their business school and uh, got some degrees in philanthropy and fundraising. But more importantly, I was always intrigued with architecture. So on the St. Paul campus, I also went for a degree and um, my area of interest was was like churches or sacred architecture. I've always been amazed by going to a big city and looking at a cathedral, whether it's in Rome or Milan or even in the Twin Cities or the, the National Shrine out in um, Washington, D.C. So anyway, I got my degree in Christian architecture and Christian studies. And um, yeah, that was an amazing time. I, I was a reasonably young guy, although I was one of the older students in the class at St. Thomas, but the graduate program was phenomenal. Um, so I, I got to learn a lot about two areas, how to fundraise and give back to your community at large and, uh, architecture. And since that time, um, I've had the privilege of doing some small developments in the local area. Now they weren't church developments, but you know, you learn enough in that area about how to do land development and how to do, um, you know, there, there's a whole policy and system in going to the city and getting approval to do developments and infrastructure. So that's the direction my life went. I, I've always enjoyed real estate. I, I'm not a real estate salesperson. I at times think I should have been, but I do enjoy going through the process of looking at a property, buying it, reshaping it, platting it, and then making it into a new use. Um, I think I've done nine, I believe, in the area, not just Laconia, but you know, surrounding counties. And they're all usually small. I think the biggest one we ever did was 10 units up by the Carver County Fairgrounds. And most are like four or five big lot developments where there's maybe five acres per lot. Okay. But yeah, it's always been a passion. I always think, look what God created with all this great rolling terrain and topography. But what if we just change it a little bit? What if we put a pond here and put a road there? And it's just always been a passion of mine. Nice. Nice. And so yeah. I'm, you still have the dealership or the, the, the real estate for the dealership. And then are, did you, are you the one who developed all the land then adjacent to that? 
Well, you know, the dealership property ultimately did get purchased because even though we were leasing it for a long time, that lease option came to an end and the option was for Ford Motor Company to either buy it or to move into a new location. And obviously they love their location. So um, not too long ago, the real estate was purchased, but then the, the money from that purchase is what we used as a catalyst to do some other developing. And one of the things we've done recently was um, a development by, again, the Carver County Fairgrounds, a nice little 10 lot development that's all sold. But then uh, the new subway on Highway 5 right next to Waconia Ford is one of those opportunities. Um, then the property right up to Aldi was another one. And, and soon you'll see a new uh, Dairy Queen going in between Aldi and Subway. Um, we've had a little bit of a glitch in that XL Energy was supposed to move an electrical pole about six weeks ago, and they keep saying, we'll do it tomorrow, but it's been six weeks of tomorrows. <laughs> Every once in a while, you get a public utility that you cannot move or you can't, uh, you can't influence them well. They just will do what they're going to do when they want to do it. So, But it's not like you can just have your electrician go do it for them either. <laughs> no. No. So anyway, um, yeah, the newest exciting thing will be this Dairy Queen, and hopefully we'll break ground in the next week or two. We're getting close. They've actually given us a date to move the pole finally. Okay, so talk a little bit about your philosophy when you do that type of thing. Like, for example, the Dairy Queen. Are you going to have an ownership? Are you owning the building and then leasing the business? Are you just developing it and selling it? Or how are you handled? How are you? What's what's kind of your I mean, obviously, you don't want to maybe don't want to give too much information out. But just from a strategic standpoint, I mean, how do you how do you like to approach these things? Well, normally I like being very personally involved. But in this case, I ran into a very unique opportunity. Um, the buyer or the person who's going to actually be running the franchise is called 14 Foods. And um, they're a great company based in Eden Prairie. In fact, they're right across the street from my, my truck business in Eden Prairie. And I love their philosophy. And their philosophy is we hire locally and we give back to the community based on our profitability. And different people that work there can help choose how they want to spend and invest back into the community. So I'm hoping they're going to be very profitable selling Billy bars, ice cream cones, and blizzards because some of that money is coming back to Waconia, whether it's Girl Scout, Cub Scout, sporting groups, church groups. But I was so impressed with this group that operates Dairy Queens. And you might say, well, okay, big deal. Someone's doing this. They have over 230 Dairy Queens in the Midwest, and they're the largest franchisee of Dairy Queens in the world. And they're located right here based in Eden Prairie. Wow. And their their business model and their philosophy just dovetailed with what, you know, my wife and I see and it's like let them take a run and, and do it all. I mean, I don't I don't know how to make a burger well, of course, but um these folks really have it dialed in and we're just so happy that they're gonna be the actual entity that takes this on. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know enough about how to run a successful dairy queen, but uh, these folks really do. So, so it'll are be you a gonna very own big the Go, I'm sorry, go ahead. I will, I will not be involved in any of the day-to-day -day operations. They do it so well. I'm just excited about it. I mean, will you still own the building then and you're leasing that out to nope, them as not, a business? Nope. In this case, we're letting them take everything because okay. um, they're the best of the best in the United States. So there's no way I'm going to, you know, try to try to hone in on that one. In this case, it's a unique deal where I'll have hands off completely. 
So what's your, you know, you mentioned the, you know, that, I mean, what I'm, he I'm hearing a lot of uh, commitment back to the community. What are the other um, guideposts to you? I mean, when you're looking at an investment, do you have a yield threshold or, you know, is it about some type of social impact or is it a combination of things? I mean, how do you, do, what's your go, no go when you're looking at uh, uh, a project or an investment? Just talk a little bit about you know, that, your, the, your psychology around that. Yeah, it's not just the return and maximizing or getting as much money as you can. You know, I look at it as, as an example, this new Dairy Queen will employ between 22 and 24 people based on seasonality. It's like, that's a big impact for one small little business. So that's number one. Number two, they want to give back to the community. They're just not going to take from the community. And, and I have the same philosophy when I'm doing a development. It's like, all right, what can I do to make this more viable for people in the, in the, in the town itself? Um, one reason I enjoy this little project up by the Carver County Fairgrounds is that there were sidewalks that allowed you to walk from that development to downtown Waconia. It was very intimate, small. It was priced, I would say, a little better than some of the other developments <clears throat> in that um, it was still a potentially affordable spot for some people. Um, and then it's like, how, how do people feel about it? I mean, you can just do something just for the money and the maximum return. But what will it look like five years, 10 years down the road? I mean, I would certainly not want my family name associated with something that's going to look, let's say, run down or, or not very professional going down the road. Um, that's why I look back at Waconia Ford and I say, all right, that company's been around 100 years. I was involved for 25 of those 100 in the legacy of that company. And I'm really proud of that because the people that worked with me and the people I worked with, made a difference for those 25 years but i'm ha i'm proud of what it looks like when you drive by it's still like wow it's a contributor to the community and again the community helped raise me and my family they allowed us to have a good life i just owe it back it, it's not just how much money you can make um, i'd rather make less and be proud of something and further the good of the whole community than to just try to take every penny out of it it's that's mm -hmm. never been my way but I look back in life and my grandma instilled in me philanthropy and tithing. And again, I don't want to get into the religious side of it, but I've always believed if you give 10% back, it comes back to you multiples over. And it's, it's not like you have to do it, but it's scary to do it. If you do it the first time and things continue well, you almost would say, I'm afraid to stop. <laughs> but it's not just religious. It's like, wow, you know, if you give back, it, it, it all works. So, yeah. And why do you want to die with a lot of money? I mean, I think you should one day at the end of your life reflect and say, I hope I made a difference. And I hope those that I was involved with, I influenced enough to help do the same and carry that forward. It's almost like when you're in line at a, at a coffee shop, buy coffee for the guy behind you. See what happens. Maybe they'll do the same for the person behind them or do it for your local law enforcement or firefighter or, you know, healthcare worker. Why wouldn't you? I mean, we're so blessed to live in Carver County. When you look at our statistics of the healthiest or the most prosperous, or, you know, there's so many categories we do so well in. We're, we're infinitely blessed out here. So why try to hold on to more than you should? So my philosophy is share don't maximize your return. Yes, once in a while that happens, but in the big picture, you better average things out. You better do the best for everybody. And yeah. 
No, that's cool. So talk about some of the, this is a good segue into some of the things that you're passionate about. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm hearing a certainly community involvement, but you know, if you're, what are some of the, your pet, uh, your, you know, your favorite causes that, uh, uh, that you really like to rally around and support. I'm hearing you being involved with, you know, like, for example, was Mary's Wish and, and you know, their initiatives. And, and so what, you know, what other things really are, um, uh, you know, kind of get you uh, excited and, and, and <laughs> enthusiastic? Well, Mary's Wish was something I was involved with for five years, and Greg and Marilyn were just great. Um, they were down at this called the Furniture Depot, and it was down on Highway 5 behind the Carco building. Um, so I enjoyed meeting people that uh, were in need. And if somebody came in and said, I have nothing, I'm on my <laughs> my worst time in life, we, we'd, we'd supply their entire apartment with furniture at no charge just because they needed it. No questions asked. Um, Greg and Marilyn did that for many years, did a wonderful job. And when they retired, then Freshwater Church purchased that entity and they're doing the same thing. But um, when you've been given so much, you just feel like somebody else needs a break. You're going to do it. Um, recently, I was involved um, or got involved with Carver County Historical Society. It's kind of a whole different avenue. But um, we just had a fundraiser out at our house on Saturday night and um, the purpose was to thank some of our donors and try to cultivate new donors for um, the restoration of the Andrew Peterson farm. And that's right on Highway 5 where the Holasic Horse Farm is. Mm -hmm. um, there's like a barn with like a patch quilt on the side of it. There's actually three red barns right in a row. And then there's the original old house that's been sided. But we're going to take the siding off, get back to the old original hand-hewn logs and that's a, a multi-year project, but, you know, restoring the history of Wakonia. I mean, Andrew Peterson was one of the founders. Um, he's a Swedish immigrant. Um, the little cemetery for the, the Swedish people is right next to Island View Golf Course. You'd never know it. If you're driving up to Island View, you look off to the right side, there's a clump of trees. That's where the, the original and, well, they still use the cemetery. But anyway, you know, the Peterson family came out here in the 1860 era built that house. I mean, that, that's like the roots of Waconia. So I'm taking delight in watching the restoration of that hall, that entire homestead take place. I, I would hope within four or five years, it'll be open to the public. It'll, it'll be like a, I don't know, historical place to stop. I mean, I'm sure it'll be listed among all these great places to visit in Minnesota. But, but it's fun to be a part of that because if you don't do that now, we could lose those chances to remember. I mean, you ask any person today who just moved in, I'm sure they don't know about the Andrew Peterson farm or who that was. And he was one of the guys that brought apple trees to Minnesota. I mean, one of the founding guys prior to the University of Minnesota even having the apple farm in the research center. So things like that are so cool to keep, uh, keep the uh, history of our city or our county alive. It's, it's, it's just wonderful. So yeah, as I get older, I appreciate history more and, uh, I think getting young people more involved is another critical thing. Um, right now, as I've watched the educational system, you'll see that everybody's on this college track. Everybody needs to go to a four-year college degree, and that's wonderful. I mean, I did myself, but there's so many other areas and avenues that we need help and um, knowledge and education in. So I'd love to see a transition to more practical fields 
um, whether it's electrician, HVAC, uh, people in plumbing, the trades. I look at the educational system just a little bit, and it's like, wow, what about figuring out how to balance a checkbook? You know, we, we do it the old <laughs> hard way. Now you do it electronically, but you still need to understand how, how to function. Like, how do you write a check to pay taxes so your community can have a school? Uh, you know, I, I wish we could teach more of the practical curriculum. And I think we're moving that direction, but I'd love to be able to be involved in kind of looking back in time and taking the, the best of the past, merging it with the electronics of, of today and, you know, still having practical knowledge, practical areas of study. Yeah, I That's agree. A passion. I agree that I, we I'm involved with launch, you know, there's in a program called adulting. And so it's kind of teaching life skills. And there's so many basic skills that people just don't get, you know, and, you know, like you mentioned, I mean, something like balancing a checkbook. I mean, there should be just sort of like basic life classes and, and, uh, you know, just how to do, you know, really simple, um, but, but important, you know, day to day things. So um, I like I, that. I, so what I, other projects? Go ahead. I'm sorry. I had an interesting situation. Uh, a young person in, in our family needed to write a letter to somebody. And again, it's like, all right, you address the letter, you get the stamp and you put a return address. Well, what's that? You know, it's like people are so used to doing an email or a text, which is great. But every once in a while, you need to send a letter. And it's so practical, but it's such a lost situation. And, you know, I Again, I'm hearkening to the past on a few things, but uh, I think it's critical for the past to help us grow into the future. Mm -hmm. That's, you know, and it makes sense with your interest in architecture and, you know, historical architecture, especially the historical religious architecture. I, when we were out in Los Angeles, this was a, a number of years ago, I, I, I uh, dragged my family to the Crystal Cathedral and it was when it was still functioning. And, um, and I and the people that were along with there were my daughter's friends and I brought them along and I said you I said you have to understand this is one of the arguably ten most famous churches in the world and you know you yep. need, there's an, there in it may not it may not you know they were starting to have problems I said it may not be here but it's something to see it's something to have been a part of I mean there's there's things like that we I was just in Las Vegas last week and you know we were talking and I said I was talking to them about Hazeltine. They said, this is something, this is, you know, for people that are really in there, like, well, I'm not that into golf. And I said, neither am I. I don't, <laughs> Last time I played golf was like 15 years ago and I was terrible. I mean, after nine, I was ready to be done, but, it, but it's still a cool thing that we have Hazeltine here, you know? And I said, it's I, like, I mean, if you were, if you, people that are really into golf, it's probably one of the top 10, you know, the most famous golf courses in the world. So it's kind of a thing, but having a, having an appreciation for that, you know, in your own backyard is nice. We had someone from the Andrew Peterson farm come speak to our Rotary Club back when we were still actually in-person meetings and talked about that initiative. So, you know, that kind of stuff's important. Dean, what are, what are other things that you're passionate about locally? I mean, I know you're, you're kind of involved in a lot of things and, you know, what else, is, what else are some of the things that really, um, really inspire you or things that you're seeing that inspire you or frankly we can take a different tack what are some of the things that are frustrating you <laughs> well some of the passions would be um i got a call a few years ago from uh pastor john brayland at freshwater church 
And he had talked about wanting to purchase some land for a future church. And Freshwater is a, a great church. They have a location in St. Bonnie in Waconia, but they'd love to have a, a common campus one day. So I got involved with Crown College, who has a number of excess acres out near the college, and tried to put a conversation together about what if the, the college would sell a parcel of land to freshwater and one day build a church out there? And I, I live in that area, so I drive by every day. And uh, I got involved in a committee at Freshwater as well as a committee at Crown College, and we were able to put together what it took to actually sell 23 acres from Crown to Freshwater recently. And uh, if you're driving between Waconia and St. Bonnie, right before you get to Crown College on the right side, um, there's a field that's been cleared recently and replanted, and that's going to be the new location one day for Freshwater Church. So I involved, I wouldn't say brokering a deal, but I was certainly involved in putting pieces together so that one day they can have a new campus. And, you know, they'd have daycare as well as the church and meeting facilities. COVID, of course, put things off just a little bit, but the land has been purchased, fully paid for. Crown is happy. They've got some additional resources they put in the bank. Um, so I enjoy things like that. And of course, with church architecture, I've enjoyed getting through the bidding process. We've already had four bids on what a new facility might cost. So I, en I enjoy that. It's just fun to see people come together. And um, so that's, that's exciting. Um, some of the frustrations I run into occasionally is uh, government bureaucracy when um, someone has done something the same way forever just because that's the way they say it is but there are better ways to do things just with conversation and uh, i always hope that we can have better conversation and i don't i don't just mean democrat republican i'm even talking local planning and zoning or you know one day the housing market is going to be so expensive that a new couple can't even live in their own community that they work in so I, I'm envisioning one day figuring out how we can maybe rezone areas for different densities, perhaps different setbacks, perhaps different rules. Um, I don't know why it's just that people who've done well can live in the community. I think everybody that wants to live here should have an opportunity, whatever their means are, but we have to have more options. So. Again, I'm probably sound like a real estate guy, and I'm not trying to be. I, I almost wish I would have been in that field my whole career, like you are, you know. But but we, no, I get excited about figuring. We out have an office for you. <laughs> Just putting okay. that out there. <laughs> uh, no, I I really want to vision how how are my kids or grandkids going to be able to live here? Um, my wife and I, Teresa and I, have six kids between us and five grandkids, and. You know, we always think, what a beautiful city and a community to live in, but could they afford to really be here? You know, and, and they're young and they're they're growing and it's not just our own kids and our family, but I'd like everybody to have an opportunity or a shot at staying here, just like I grew up. Like I said, it's like growing up in Mayberry and what an amazing experience that I've had in my life. And I, before I die, I want to make sure more people have that same opportunity. It's a I huge... 40 good years to work toward that goal. Great. Well, good, because that's a huge issue. I mean, that is something that, you know, I've had other guests on the show. Bob Rep, it's a, obviously, you know, Bob Repke, it's a it passion oh, yeah. is, is, you know, workforce housing. And, you know, there's a, it was actually, Dean, this is a, a lot of the sort of motivations behind the podcast. 
was to give people context. You know, there's, there's a tendency sometimes when people come to a community, you know, when they just move in, they sort of, they have a, a more myopic view of things. You know, it's like, okay, I'm moving in. I'm, especially given the price points, you know, that people are, I mean, I, you know, I don't know if you've been following the, um, like the CUD project over on the east side of the lake. But I mean, if you'd have said five years ago that someone was going to be building detached townhomes in Waconia and they'd be selling over a million dollars, you'd have thought that you were, you'd have wondered what they were smoking. Um, but that's yeah. been, that so far, that's been a very successful project. And, you know, basically it's pretty hard right now to build anything new out there for under half of, you know, five, six right now with lumber prices, you know, you're more in that, I was going to say five, six, it's really more in that, you know, five fifty to seven range. Um, and you know, that, that creates yeah. some huge challenges for the, for everybody else that wants to be in the, in a, in, in the community. And, I don't know the how sustainable that is. And and so sometimes when people come in and they're spending that kind of money, they have sort of a different view and they maybe don't have the full context. So uh, I, I enjoy talking to people like you and getting the, you know, kind of the backdrop for these communities and, and you know, some of the values and, and objectives that people have, you know, like, for example, in Eastern Carver County Schools. You know, there's there's a tendency to want to divide the, you know, to kind of pit the schools against each other, when in reality that was a collective decision by the community to tax ourselves, 95 million dollars and build a second high school so that kids would have a greater opportunity to participate in things as opposed to having this, you know, sort of mega high school where, you know, if your kid's not at least a division two prospect, they're never going to set foot on a basketball court or a football field, or for that matter, on the band. You mentioned, you know, the band and I, you know, Waconia has such a long tradition of, you know, people being able to be involved in, 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 in music and things. And, and once you get to a certain size, that becomes less attainable for people. So I think it's so important to have that context. And so, I'm not sure if there's a question in there. Or I just got off in the weeds, but. <laughs> well, no, I mean, I'm looking back in time a ways now. I, um, at one point, I get a call from a local bank who had taken back a project and they were kind of sitting or stuck with this project out on Oak Avenue. It was called uh, Frontera. And uh, there were like 120 um, townhome lots that were platted but not built on so I don't know if I was wise or silly but I did buy those and uh, worked with a couple of large development builders and we'd sell 20 30 lots at a time but for the ones that were smart they were putting packages together the lumber package and all the items and I remember selling those lots this is silly but this was in I want to say 2000 era but I owned all the lots for $20,000 because the bank just sold them all at the same price to me. And um, then I sold them to different developer um, builder groups, but they were putting packages together of like 80,000. So they had a hundred thousand real cost in the unit and the lots. I think they were selling for 139 at the time and they're still pretty affordable in Waconia, but I like the concept in that if you can buy the, the real estate rights, modular housing is real popular right now where you build a pod in a, in a factory and you set it up with a crane and there might be three or four different sections that come together. But um, I've toured quite a few of those companies and I'm, I'm going to a seminar next week that talks about the future of building. And again, it talks about how you're going to adjust your building codes, how you're going to adjust the side setbacks, front setbacks on lots. But 
boy, my my hope and objective would be: can we still build a new home for under two hundred thousand dollars, lot home and everything, and make it look respectable so you don't feel weird about buying that home? So, mm-hmm. I maybe two hundred is still a lot of money, but I mean, you know, if you're looking at a mortgage on you know, around 200, just the base mortgage is probably $900 a month. By the time you add tax and insurance, you should be able to get in at 11, 1200 a month with minimal down. That's just my hope and my goal. Maybe I'm living in a pipe dream here, but I mean, that's what I'm hoping for. And I'm talking to different farmers that are around the periphery of Waconia trying to find out, hey, would you be willing to sell at least 40 acres, take a discounted price so you can give back to your community I'd be willing to do a project with very little margin, try to get a builder in there that can do a modular type of setup and, and make this happen. I mean, I don't know. I, that, that's, that's a dream I've got. When you say, what are your aspirations? I'd love to try to figure out how that might be possible. I, yeah, and we've, we've been kicking around. I've talked to the commissioners about a very similar idea. And uh, we can talk about that offline. I actually, that's a that's a goal that I've got as well because I just don't think we can continue to go down a path where you're, you know, where you can't build, you can't have a new house for under half a million dollars. Um, right. and I don't. I mean, I don't think that's sustainable for a community, and I and, and it creates a, a lot of weird dynamics. So I like that. I, I like I like that as a strategy. Thank you. So yeah. Dean, talk a little bit, you mentioned your wife a couple of times, talk a little bit about your family. Um, you know, I mean, you're just, you know, maybe give people a little sense. I mean, of what that, you know, about that part of your life. Yeah. Um, well, we live out in a, in a development or we have a farm that we call Maple Ridge Farm and we're out between Lake Waconia where the uh, landing is on the east side, northeast side and between there and Crown College. So if you're driving by our place, you'll see a vineyard going up our hill and we've got a tree house that you can see up on top of the, the vineyard. And the tree house is kind of a joke because we have five grandkids and they always wanted to have a tree house. But my wife, Teresa, said, well, that's fine, but I like an adult tree house. So anyway, we built this tree house and it's more for the adults than it is for the kids. But going back to up front, <laughs> her she shed. Yeah. There you go. Well, Teresa, my wife and I, and my lovely wife and I have six kids between us, five grandkids. Um, you know a lot about me now. I've been rambling on, but my wife is uh, president at the Hennepin County Medical Center. It's a big job, um, especially with the riots that went on, with all the shootings that take place every day. It's it's like a third world country, and I'm very proud that she's uh, doing the best job that they can down there. I mean, it's it's a lot of work. It's like a 24/7 job, but uh, I'm glad she's doing that. She uh, worked at Ridgeview originally many years ago. Then she was president over at Children's Hospitals and Clinics, and they did a huge renovation project. And then she was on the cusp of retiring. And one of the county commissioners in Hennepin County said, hey, would you be willing to take on another assignment? And I had hoped she'd say no, but she <laughs> she took it on. So anyway, she works in what I would consider the uh, toughest place to work, but probably the best place you could work if you need medical help. And that's HCMC or Hennepin Healthcare, they call it. Uh, Teresa is very involved in philanthropy. So we are all, all in on what what can we do to help people? Um, she just had a groundbreaking on one of her uh, big projects about a week ago called um, 
Firefighters for Healing, and it's a, a burn unit that's like a Ronald McDonald house would be for sick kids, but it's, this is a house built inside of a, a building just for families of firefighters who've been burned or any law enforcement person that needs help. So, uh, again, groundbreaking just took place. Um, they hope to be open in about a year and a half. But if you're a law enforcement or a person that has a need, you just go there. There's no cost. Your family stays there. They eat there. They they live there while their family members in the hospital. So I'd say Teresa's more passionate than even I. I mean, she's been doing this her entire life. So very proud of her. Um, in her background, she's a registered nurse. Uh, about midway through her career, she went into uh, the Carlson School of Business, got into hospital management and uh, has now been an executive in the hospital world for, gosh, 30 years. So again, we value family. I mean, we just had a, an event here a couple of weeks ago, just our family, and gosh, we had a lot of people. You know, you think six kids and your grandkids and their spouses, and we had the cousins over, and a couple of new babies were born in the family. So um, the Hilgers background is, is a pretty common name, and um, between my wife's family, who's got six kids, and I've got a lot of family members, gosh, we can have a hundred people out here. So that's why we have like old, you know, an old style gathering in a new environment. You know, we, we built a house that's a replica of like a, a modern farmhouse and uh, we can accommodate lots of people, whether it's for a fundraiser, whether it's for family, but uh, that that's our focus. That's why we get up every day. You know, why are we going to do something for the greater good of family and community? Nice. I mean, I, I can't ever, Imagine a day where we just sit there and just kind of sit around lazily doing nothing. I mean, we're, we're always trying to focus on what is next. And that sure. inspires us. We're, we're type A personalities, I guess, for better or worse. That makes a big difference. I, you know, I, I have a guy that was my mentor and he was, he's in his, he's in his eighties and, you know, he's still, he's in the office all the time. I mean, he's going and he's as sharp. I mean, I, you know, I'm a lot younger than he is and I have a hell of a time keeping up with him. And, you know, there's other people, once they retire, you know, once people retire and if they retire without a purpose or a mission, you know, they just really seem to go down fast. I mean, from a health standpoint, but also just mentally, you sort of lose, you know, you lose things to talk about. I remember when my grandpa retired, my grandpa, I was the only son and my dad was an only child and we bought the family farm. So my grandpa was around all the time and, you know, he was taught me to box and, you know, I mean, all kinds of maybe more nefarious things that I learned from him, but <laughs> he was a trucker and he talked like a trucker, but, you know, when he finally retired, you know, he just, he just went, he just really, he just kind of lost his purpose and lost his passion. And, you know, so I think that's, that's really important to have something to look forward to. I think that's a real critical thing. So, um, good for you guys. You to, know, when, you know when our, keep making a difference. Yeah. When our meeting's over today, here um, I've got another friend who's become a mentor of mine, Lynn Deerdorf, or Deerdorf Apple Orchards, and they've got Prairie Lake Winery. But I'd mentioned to Lynn, hey, I want to do a small apple orchard. Well, that's all he had to hear. He said, "Well, I'll come out there. We'll map that out. We'll make sure you have the best apple orchard next to mine around." You know, he said, "I don't want competition, badly." But I mean, a guy like Lynn is so wise and so sage that I am so blessed to that he'll come out to my place. And then one other guy I've got to put a plug in for who's made a huge impact in our community is Daryl Sudheimer, Daryl and his wife, Joanne. 
They used to have D&J Furniture, and then they had the American Hotel. And, you know, I'm on a committee with Daryl for, um, it's called Southwest Transportation Coalition, and we worked on the 212 program to have four-lane highway from Mill Sleep Farm out to Cologne. And there's a lot of other great people on the committee, but Daryl is such an inspiration. And Daryl is in his 80s. You'd think Daryl's in his 50s. That guy has got more energy and more connections, but uh, I have a meeting with him tomorrow, and he's just such a nice guy, but he's always thinking. And about about a month ago, he said, hey, we need a new convention center in Waconia. Do you want to partner up on one? I said, I didn't even know we needed one, Daryl. But, you know, Daryl's vision <laughs> as we grow, he said, we're going to need one one day. And, uh, you know, so if you don't have guys that vision like that, you, you will never move anywhere. And uh, anyway, I just am so inspired. You mentioned mentors. And I think a guy like Daryl and another guy that was a good mentor um, was was a developer out here um, years ago. And I won't get into it because he passed away. But, you know, there's guys like that that just give you that, that bug in your head. And it's like, all right, I think I could do it. I think I could follow in their footsteps, you know. So, I, Again, I have, to, I have yeah. to tell you a Daryl story. We were, uh, we're, I'm a commissioner on the CDA with Daryl. And so we went out touring properties one day and we were out at the um, uh, you know, properties that the CDA has and there's a senior facility out in um, Norwood. And honest yeah. to God, every little old lady in that building knew Daryl. <laughs> we were walking through. he knew everybody you know we were i said i didn't know daryl had so much game you know oh <laughs> I mean? uh, it's just so cool and daryl still goes too he dances almost every other weekend with joanne or others they, he's quite the dancer too oh yeah yeah and he's just a very charming guy and just you know and just everybody, you know, just it's tons of people coming out and and wanting to say hi and and uh, anyway, it was just, it was kind of, it was really cool to see and uh, you know there's people like that you know you know I think of like Daryl and Barb Swanson from Carver they're kind of you know just just people that you want to be around because they just have such a long history of commitment to the community and and uh, involvement in things and and you know they good examples and so I appreciate you being a good example for someone and and for spending all this time you know sharing the stuff that you're doing in your life and I hope that um, you know this serves as an inspiration for other people to get involved because we like we talked about these people coming in um, you know I think it's a it's a really rich part of the community and it's something that's readily available here that's maybe not available in other places. And uh, people who listen to the podcast know I always tell the story about the garage door, but people who come here and, and uh, just sleep in their houses and go somewhere else and, and they don't get involved, it, you know, it's okay, but you could live anywhere if you're going to do that. You know, when you're here, there, if you do that and you live here, you leave so much on the table. You know, you can have, right. you can have such a higher yeah. level of um, existence uh, by plugging in, you know, becoming part of the community. And that's, you know, certainly a Bob Repke uh, uh, catchphrase is, you know, community, community. When we, in fact, at Rotary, we always do an over-under when he starts talking on how many times he's going to say community. And, but it really is important. And it's a, it's a, you know, that's, it's just sort of where you do life. You know, you talked about the richness of having family and, and, and mentors and, and people around and, you know, that people are really buy into this idea that this is, that there's something bigger than yourself, that it's more, it's not simply about extracting as much money as you possibly can out of a situation and then going off somewhere else. And um, so 
Um, I really appreciate you taking all the time. Is there anything else that you'd like to add before we wrap this up, Dean? You know, I didn't know a lot about your podcast until more recently, and I just want to say thank you for being available to do it and to do it, and it's a commitment that you've made, and I just want to say thank you. Oh, well, thank you. I appreciate that, and, and I appreciate you being on. Um, Dean, thank you. I'm gonna, we're going to stop recording here in a few minutes, but I really do appreciate you coming, and I'm going to have to give money to the Historical Society so I can come out and see your house. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, we're going to have a nice big event on October 2nd, right out at the uh, farm, right out on Highway 5. So um, it's going to be open to the public, and uh, we're going to have some fun. We're going to show people what the, the buildings look like, and we're going to have some entertainment. We'll have travel ground playing out there and uh, some food trucks. But we just want to let people know what's going on, and it's kind of a new thing. So I'd mark uh, October 2nd on your calendar. If you get me the information, I'll put it in the show notes. And, you know, Chet's, uh, Chet's actually well, on my Chet's on my target list of someone that I want to interview because, you know, he just pops up all over the place. Some friends of ours where my wife's studio is, they have a fundraiser and there's Chet, you know, rocking and rolling or playing for the art, you know, at arts consortium stuff. I mean, he's everywhere and, and he's just, he's just a cool guy. So, um, (laughs) you had me at farm, but now with Chet, it's kind of a slam dunk. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) All right. Thanks again, Dean. Take care. All right. Here, Greg. Bye-bye.